Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about equity, inclusion and diversity in financial services. On the podcast, we seek to shine a light on positive progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer lots of ideas to help drive change. Before we get started today, I just want to take a moment to thank our friends at City AM who have given Diversity Podcast a new home at Impact AM, their pages dedicated to ESG, impact investment, DEI, and more. Now, we really appreciate that they publish and promote both our episodes and our supporting blog series so that their readers can stay right on the very top of what's important in the diversity, equity and inclusion debate. So thank you. So I am so looking forward to this discussion today because I'm joined by two guests, Billy Simmons and Jeff Parsons. Allow me to introduce them to you. Billy Simmons, she, her, is the co-founder and chief operating officer of Daylight, the first only digital banking platform in the US specifically designed for and by the LGBTQ community. Now, previously, she founded a startup to help trans and non-binary people access safe services. Her background is in marketing and software engineering at fintech-focused companies such as Techstars and Anthemis Group, and she regularly speaks on LGBTQ plus initiatives in both mental health and technology. Billy, it's great to have you on the show. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm so looking forward to the discussion today. And introducing our second guest is Jeffrey Jeff Parsons. He, him, Jeff is the founder and the CEO or the Chief Empathy Officer of the Inclusion Imperative, a best practice diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging consultancy. It helps commercial organisations and their leaders and staff harness the power of inclusion as a key strategy for well-being, organisational learning and superior business outcomes. And although his particular expertise lies in LGBTQ plus inclusion, he focuses heavily on the intersectionality with other marginalised characteristics to promote a holistic approach to inclusion. So, Jeff, a very warm welcome to the show. Thank you, Julia. Delighted to be here. So I'm always curious when we have great guests on the show. I'm dying to know what you're both up to. Billy, can I come to you first? I'm currently in Mexico City. Um, I have been spending the week with uh, my co-founder, and we have been figuring out what the rest of the year looks like for Daylight and for our new product um, focused on family building, Daylight Grow. Wonderful. And we're going to get in some of the characteristics of Daylight for sure, but also the, the key things that you're thinking about in that strategy, no doubt. Jeff, same question to you. What are you focused on? You know, the widespread pushback against LGBTQ plus rights and inclusion that we're seeing all around the world. You know, there was a time not so long ago when we could, you know, sort of self-righteously point at a few other countries where we say, well, you know, it's, it's illegal to be gay in 60, 70 odd countries. But, you know, with, with the raft of anti-trans legislation in the US and, you know, all the, all the, the issues around the gender reform but bill in Scotland, these things are closer to home now. And, you know, the world is, is, is becoming a bit more of a toxic place. And that's, you know, I'm focused very much on trying to work with organisations to try to push back against that, use them as a positive influence. And we've talked a lot on the podcast, particularly in the, in the concerns of LGBTQ plus um, discussions, the corporate importance and imperative that organisations take on their shoulders to protect the rights of their employees around the world. So uh, very curious to get into some thoughts about that. And Jeff, I wonder if I could stay with you. Sort of the first thought is I mentioned in the biography about um, 
your approach to inclusion by fostering and focusing on this concept of intersectionality. I wonder if I could return to that and just get your thoughts about why that matters particularly and why it's so important through your opinion on focusing it in that way. We're all individuals and we're all made up of multiple characteristics and, you know, we're not automatons, we're not cookie cutters. It, it doesn't make sense to to try to see people in in ways that, that, that don't reflect the reality of of, of organic creatures. So, you know, sitting here, I am an amalgam of different characteristics, as, as are you, as are everybody. And if we don't take into account all of the issues that, that people face, we're not actually doing anything. I always use the analogy of a, of a water balloon. You know, you can squeeze a water balloon and, and, and sort out the, the bulging one bit. It just appears in another place. And if you're not addressing all of the issues that, that, that people face, the compounding barriers to inclusion that, that, that people who have more than one marginal characteristic often face, you know, then, then you're not really achieving anything. There's very little point in, in trying as an organization, for example, to be LGBTQ plus inclusive if you're still racist or sexist or misogynistic. All that's doing is basically moving the problem. Now, this is not, this isn't you, of course. I mean, Kimberly Crenshaw became famous for, for coining the phrase about intersectionality over 30 years ago, and it certainly predates even that. But it, it, it's, it's a recognition since then that, you know, we have to take a, a holistic approach to, to inclusion. Otherwise, you're really not achieving the end result that you want. Well, Billy, I'd love to bring you in here uh, for your thoughts on this as well. And I'm sure this must be things you're thinking about when you're designing, you know, Daylight Bank. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the it's a simultaneous joy and difficulty when building for the LGBT community is that the LGBT community sits across all intersections in the world. Um, there are other, you know, if you are uh, white, you are probably not identifying as black. Like, you know, the, the other into other sort of identity uh, areas have more sort of silos. Um, whereas if you are LGBT, you can be black, you can be disabled, you can be a woman. Um, and so, in, you know, to Jeff's point, like in order to build and to serve the LGBT community, you need to understand and build for all of the intersections that exist, um, which you know in America is a is a huge amount of intersections, um, and has been you know a, a very challenging process to be to be totally candid, but in a in a way that is like solving a very difficult problem and the joy that you get out of solving a very difficult problem. So it's uh, I feel very blessed that my job is is figuring out those problems. But I'm really curious. Could it give us a few examples of of that challenge and and how that bears out? Absolutely. I mean, you know, from a data point of view, you can't talk about LGBT wealth disparity without talking about race in America in particular. Um, you know, the, the black community in particular has been, you know, affected by slavery and segregation and racism and policy changes and, you know, just frequent discrimination nowadays to accessing capital. So if you're a black LGBT person, both aspects of your identity are affecting your access to to wealth, to income, to stability. Um, and so, you know, when we're looking at it at the kind of at the macro, it's, you know, you, you, you are sort of grappling with all of these different um, layered levels of discrimination that affect things like your finances. Um, a really specific example that I often uh, think about and is, is frankly not a problem that we've really solved uh, yet, is, um, is again like racism and sounds like I haven't solved racism yet at daylight, but you understand what I'm trying to say. But, um, you know, with our, one of our core features is the ability to have 
your chosen name on your card. So it can, doesn't have to match your legal ID. Um, you can just put whatever name you identify as you use on your card. Um, we received feedback pretty early on that, um, you know, particularly for the, again, for the black community, but um, in general, people of color are often challenged at point of sale um, when they have, when they use um, a debit card or a credit card of any kind and are asked for ID that matches that, uh, that card that they're using. So if we're issuing cards that don't match your ID, because that's the problem that we're solving, then we are potentially creating a problem for a part of our community down the line. Um, the closest we could get to solving that was to put a phone number on the back of the card where we would validate that, you know, we have legal name on file for these cards so we can validate that the person who's holding the ID is the owner of the card. Um, but it's a great example of how, you know, I'm very entrenched in the LGBT community and in solving problems that I myself have faced. But, um, you know, when it comes to other intersections, it's really important to be in constant dialogue with other parts of the community to hear about their experiences and the blind spots that you might have. Well, can we explore it from, from the other sort of point of view, if you like, which is this question of how then financial services can play a part in uh, creating a sense of belonging with the community as well. Is there anything you're particularly focused on with that? Even just from the very basic you know, point of view of showing acceptance at the kind of larger financial institution level um, does go some way in, in allowing consumers to feel um, like they're being you know, listened to and accepted by their banks. I think that uh, you know, really the, one of the impetuses for Daylight is that that often doesn't go far enough for the, for the community and you know, often uh, you know, we're, we're, we're savvy people. We can we can tell when someone is just putting a rainbow flag on their social media icon for the month of June because it's financially beneficial for them, not because they have a genuine desire to include the community. Um, and so, you know, a, a, we use our sort of leverage our position um, in the industry to really encourage other financial institutions to be making meaningful change towards inclusion. Uh, you know, a great example of that was. Uh, about a year ago now, um, we had our campaign called Call Me By My Name, which was asking other um, financial institutions to take on the uh, standards for chosen name that we ourselves have taken on. And we offered free consulting to, to any bank that, um, that wanted to, you know, to learn how to, how to build this system. It's actually a shockingly simple system, if I'm being totally honest. Um, it's really not that complex, but no one's ever thought to build it. Um, and no bank took us up on it because, you know, there are a couple of smaller regional banks that were kind of vaguely interested. But the reality is, is that um, a lot of the systems that financial services institutions have are very complex and are very sort of rigid and brittle towards change. And so there's a lot of goodwill, but I, you know, I remain skeptical about large financial institutions' ability to create meaningful uh, change and inclusion for our community. Well, Jeff, I'd love to get your thoughts on this as well. You know, is this your experience of financial services and belonging? My background is financial services. I was I've worked in financial services for thirty five years before becoming a consultant in, in DNI, and that was always working in front office. So very much seeing that. Now, I wasn't on the retail space, but I'm acutely aware of, of you know the, the, the things that Billy is talking about and the nervousness that that, that organisations have about either embracing this change or being seen to be embracing it for for cynical reasons, and some of them do. You know, it, it, the pink washing, rainbow washing, really does happen. 
but on the other hand, we, we have to be careful that not, not to, to, to stifle where there is genuine awareness um, pushes for, for actually helping spread the message. Um, so that, that can be very challenging. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's particularly difficult. Now, you know, there's a school of thought out there that, you know, we'd be better off not doing any of this stuff. You know, I'm, I'm, I've actually been invited to, a, you know, later this year to go to the Oxford Union for a debate, which is, you know, the, the, the premise that it's considering is that more harm than, than good has been done by the commercialization of pride. Um, and that, that's, that's a, you know, a valid consideration is, you know, are we actually going backwards by trying to be seen to be too visible? Is, are we we're just not going to create a cynical reaction against that? I don't actually agree with that because I do think inherently that all awareness is, is a good thing. But you can see the point that they're trying to make there. And it is a challenge. And, you know, on a more practical level, the, the, the point, one of the points that Billy was making was around effectively almost like systems and data collection. That's inherently a problem for financial services and all organizations when you are trying to create, to collect and use data meaningfully, not only because of the, the huge range of, of, of ways that they want to identify within the LGBTQ plus community, plus the intersectionalities that overlaid that with, with that, but then you know trying to get that data, collect that data in, in ways which make people comfortable when they're inherently not, um, and then and therefore be able to cut data meaningfully uh, to find out more about you know what the actual needs are. It, it can be a huge challenge. So it's mm -hmm. it's an ongoing an ongoing consideration for for organisations, not least financial services, about about how to collect and learn really what their customers and indeed their staff really do need because the data is is, is difficult to, to collect and, and to interpret. And listening to you two talk there, there's a sort of there's a phrase that sort of comes to my mind because part of it's about being very comfortable with what's being collected on you, comfortable with being how you're being represented and also comfortable in the way that the organizations are um, championing and heralding their progress or not in, in this area. Um, and it kind of comes down to this question of psychological safety, which comes up a lot on the, on the podcast as well. And Jeff, I'd love to stay with you and just get your thoughts about, you know, this is incredibly important in the context of belonging. How does this sit with you? And particularly in this context of celebrating difference, is, does that make people inherently less comfortable and feel less safe? Difference is another word for diversity. Um, and we always talk about diversity and inclusion, leaving aside the equity part for a moment. The, 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 the old phrase of diversity and inclusion, I always say, Diversity is, is equivalent to, to difference and inclusion is equivalent to celebrating that difference, right? So you can have diversity without inclusion, which is actually not really achieving much. It's just putting a lot of people who maybe look different or even think different in a space and, and not trying, not really finding ways to to get more out of the, the synergies that that offers, you know, to, to mine that for making it more than the sum of its parts. Only the inclusion overlay will do that. And that's where cel celebrating difference is overlaying diversity with inclusion and you can the, the overlaying of diversity with inclusion is how you create psychological safety psychological safety basically means that people feel free to to be of themselves and to express difference and that can be you know differences of opinion difference of differences of perspective differences of experience and feeling free to do so in a way which is not going to create a, any detriment for them you know if you if you don't feel like you can speak up without there being some sort of you know, punishment for that, if you, if you challenge receive wisdom or you basically just ask, you know, is this always the way we should be doing it? BAU, let's, let's challenge BAU. Is there a better way we could be doing this? You know, if you don't feel like you could do that, then you don't have that, that psychological safety to, 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 to contribute. And 
organizations who which embrace the, the importance of psychological safety get so much more out of the teams that, that, that work for them just because teams are more than the sum of their parts and organizational learning is a team sport individuals can know a lot of things but it's where teams work together to create more than the sum of their parts that value is created and that can only happen if people feel safe to be contributing without fear of reprimand that's what psychological safety offers and billy in, in the introduction in your, your biography if you like i was mentioning about you talk a lot about the mental health elements of this and i wonder if i could bring you in here to get your, your thoughts about is there anything at risk of overlooking when we particularly think about LGBTQ plus employees? Um, it's a good question. You know, I, the, the thing that kind of came to mind when, when Jeff was talking was actually kind of a different perspective, which is from the perspective of the group that is trying to have inclusion in them. And, I, you know, I, I've noticed we have reached a point in in culture, particularly in the queer community, where there's a lack of, of kind of patience and compassion and empathy for one another on both sides of the coin. And what I find really interesting is I, like, I, I kind of find that it is very counterproductive to progress. And I think that sometimes we err on the side of like cancel culture and that kind of thing, where I've been kind of surprised in my own experiences how how that can be wielded um, in unproductive ways. Like to give you like a more specific example, you know, um, like non-binary pronouns, like pronouns like they, them, um, people mess those up. Um, and those are, uh, you know, myself as a trans person, I have, have messed them up in the past as well. It's a natural linguistic thing to do to, to fluff up your words, to get things wrong. And I've seen examples where, you know, where we have like worked towards like being able to use uh, pronouns that you're not used to using and the people that get, you know, inadvertently misgendered is obviously an awful experience for them, but they approach it with patience and compassion. And I've seen kind of the other side where, um, you know, people will write angry Twitter posts because someone, you know, messed up a pronoun or something and it turns into this like frenzy. And I think that we, we owe it to ourselves and as a community to have compassion for one another and to to understand that there are that there are differences to Jeff's point and there are differences of, of perspective and energy and approach to our liberation as a community. Um, and I think that the I think that the queer community has reached a point where I am personally concerned that we are sometimes doing ourselves a disservice. Um, kind of again similar to what Jeff was saying of this idea of like has pride become too commercialized? Mm. If you look at the uh, the acceptance of gay and lesbian people in particular in like the 90s and early 2000s, a lot of that was through these tactics that we're now saying are like no good. Um, media representation, uh, representation higher up in businesses, um, things like that. You know, once once we elevate and uh, bring these people to the to the forefront, um, we can help make change because we're in positions of power. If we say, oh, there's actually no value in you know, bringing trans women into the C-suite, for example, um, we're kind of just missing the point here, which is that like the people that are currently in the C-suite are not going to just suddenly dismantle these systems or relinquish power. Um, but there is, you know, there is a there is a value to all all of these different approaches. We should mm -hmm. also be criticizing Pride every June as well, as I did like 10 minutes ago. Um, but, you know, a multi-pronged approach is how we get there. And it's not by 
pointing fingers at other parts of our own community and saying, you're doing this wrong, you're a bad person. We're all just trying to be accepted and to be loved at the end of the day. And Jeff, well, let me bring you in there because I'd love to get your thoughts in response to Billy's remarks and also kind of framed around the, the mental well-being point of view as well. Psychological safety is, you know, if, if we think about that, that as something that we, we, we want to create, we have to remember it's a two-way street. And you know, if we, if we want to be able to make mistakes, one of the, the key aspects of psychological safety is the ability to make mistakes without, without there being negative consequence. You know, well-intentioned mistakes are exactly that. And what they are effectively are learning opportunities. They're, they're not something to be punished. They are actually something to be learned from. And we, we expect people to, to give us that opportunity if we are to contribute our full, our full selves to, to the team or the environment that we're in. But we have to give that to other people as well. We have to be, you know, open-minded to, to people who will make those well-intentioned mistakes that Billy was saying. You know, people will fluff their words. People don't know this stuff. It isn't necessarily inherently obvious to people who don't identify as part of the community how this how this should be phrased or how this should work. And we have to allow them to make those mistakes so that they can learn. And if, if we overly police them, if we cancel them, you know, as you can probably tell, I'm no, I'm no real fan of cancel culture as somebody who gets cancelled a lot just because of looking like a middle-aged, middle-class, white, cis man. I don't look like I'm carrying an awful lot of minority characteristics, but I do understand the importance of, of, of listening to people who have that view. But if we overly cancel them and we chop them off and say, you, you can't possibly say that, that's wrong, or you can't have a view because you, you haven't got the lived experience, we're doing ourselves a disservice and, and we're, all we're doing is effectively driving people away from, from, from the ability to be empathetic and compassionate about what we care about. Mm -hmm. And that, that's in the end ultimately doing ourselves no favours. To your point around mental uh, well-being, sorry it took me a while to get there, but it's, it's all related. Um, and yeah, I mean, obviously, it's fairly well established, you know, mental ill health disproportionately affects the LGBTQ plus community. I mean, Stonewall has produced endless statistics over the years and a few years ago demonstrated that over half of LGBTQ plus people have suffered with, in the last year from depression. And that includes you know, really horrendous statistics around the amount of LGB and in particular trans people and people of particular age groups who have considered or even attempted suicide enormously disproportionately higher than normal average of the population. And that's just because you know, the stresses and strains of, of carrying difference in, 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 in workplace and in life where you can't be yourself just has an, an overall massively horribly eroding effect. If you can't bring your full self to any environment and you have to hide, you know, the, the, the ability to do that because you have a less visible characteristic, say less visible than say being of a minority ethnicity or a, uh, having a different gender, if it, it takes a choice from someone like me to be out at work. You know, I... I couldn't, I could have choose not to do that. And for half of my career, I did choose not to do that. And I look back on the amount of pressure and strain that that put on myself. You know, the, the mental effect that, or the, the mentally debilitating effect that had, you know, it's really, really um, a, a painful thing. And, and organizations need to do their best to, to understand and to find ways to, to, to ease that burden for, for, um, for their staff so that, you know, people can feel free to be themselves and they're not putting themselves under those enormous strains. There are lots of ways that they can do that, of course, and I could go into those, but you know, I was actually designated as a mental, mental wellbeing ambassador in my previous role when I was uh, in my previous bank at, uh, job at, uh, Macquarie, at Macquarie. And uh, that gave people the opportunity to just see me as a resource and come and tap me on the shoulder for a, you know, a, a quiet word if, if they, they just had something about LGBTQ+, which, 
was was affecting them either themselves or someone they knew or a colleague or a friend or whatever and they could we could just go for a chat things like that and having you know uh, employee networks where you can get a good safe space buddy systems where you know people can can uh, you know make sure that they never feel alone look outside the organization to organizations like mind out or an app voda which is mental well-being app that i'm proud to be a, a, a advisory board member of more than anything create an inclusive environment and an open environment internally where people can be of themselves that is the best antidote to, to the mental health challenges that lgbtq plus people will face in the workspace yeah. it's interesting listening to you talk i mean my career in financial services sounds very similar to yours, which was do not come out, it will destroy your career. And the burden of carrying the, you know, I always say the most stressful thing for me was every Monday morning, trying to avoid the question, what were you doing at the weekend? You know, and it was, I had strategies and I had ways in which to adjust. And if I had a mental health well-being officer at work who also had an empathy and an understanding of LGBTQ um, plus concerns, I think I would have had a very, very different career pathway in, in so, so many ways, so many ways. I think it's a great moment to welcome into the discussion, Cynthia Akinsanya, who has some research to support the discussion today. And thank you as always, Cynthia, I really appreciate the research. And let's take a few moments to remind everyone how to find Diverse City Podcast and that links to the research can be found on our website, diversecitypodcast.com, where you can find all our episodes and sign up for early notifications of future recordings. Do also sign up for our newsletter called DE&I, That's Caught Our Eye. That's where we share news stories and updates so you can stay on top of what's current right now. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Diverse City Podcast is available on all good podcast channels. And we're immensely proud of our five-star rating. So if you did take a moment to rate us, we would be most grateful because it actually all helps to promote the show to our global audience as well. Listen, I, I'm going to ask you both, if you would, to answer a question that I, I put to all our guests on the show. Uh, and regular listeners, listeners will know that this is something that I'm, I take very, very seriously, particularly right now as we're navigating interesting economic times, to say the least. Um, so I'm really curious to hear from you while there's a risk that this conversation about diversity, equity, inclusion could drop down the agenda, I want to hear from you as to see us out of the show about why this absolutely must remain high. Billy, can I come to you first? From a kind of product or like consumer-facing side, diverse teams build better products. Um, and you know we've seen a huge amount of sentiment change towards the large financial services institutions, particularly the big banks um, from marginalised communities frankly, just being sick of being given products that are not designed for them. Um, and so if you want to retain your customers, if you want to deepen your relationship with your customers, um, if you want to just build some more cool stuff, um, you should be doing that for diverse communities. And the best way to build for diverse communities is to have diverse people building for those diverse communities. Well, if that's not a compelling reason, particularly when we think about technology and innovation, I don't know what is. Jeff, uh, the final words remain with you. If you would, again, give us a compelling reasons why this must remain high on the agenda. It's no accident that I call my business the inclusion imperative, because for me, this is an absolute imperative. It's an imperative for a number of reasons. Um, and I also, you know, that the motto of my business is making the world a more inclusive place, one organization at a time. Organizations have enormous power and enormous responsibilities. Organizations create their own mini societies, right? We, that's why we talk about these different models that they can have, whether it's a when in Rome or a, an embassy model or an, or an advocacy model. They create the, the, the rules, the laws within within their world. 
and you know by channeling and those the power that they have they can make a huge difference not only to the to, to the people within the organization but to, to the, the the world outside i mentioned at the very top of the show that we were talking about you know one of the things that's bothering me at the moment is you know the pushback against lgbt rights and inclusion that we're seeing around the world and organizations are they have enormous power and influence and reach and and and, and wherewithal and clout to, to make a difference in that space we've seen many, many opportunities that they have taken over the years to to protest against adverse laws and to make a huge difference and those laws have been changed there are plenty of examples i could i could give but i in the interest of time i won't now but you know that's that's very important but this is not just altruism as we've say, said earlier and as billy was just referring to this makes business sense you know as we were talking about psychological safety you know organizations benefit from everybody being able to give of themselves and they can be more than, than the sum of their parts it's what peter drucker called you know that the, the innovation compulsion innovate or die he said and the only way to do that is to is to challenge receive wisdom be able to do that and bring the perspective of, of people who have a different lived experience and a different perspective to play in, in 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 creating what i call constructive conflict that makes organizations able to progress and, and, and be better for the future than they are today and i really appreciate your point about constructive conflict organizations as a society today we probably don't have nearly enough of that without running the risk of kind of the council culture but actually we must face up and, and embrace the difference and enjoy the challenge of the discussion around difference as well jeff parsons chief empathy officer ceo founder of the inclusion imperative thank you so much for being on the show today very welcome thank you and billy simmons who is the co-founder and the chief operating officer of daylight thank you so much for your time all the way from mexico Thank you so much, Julia. And to everybody, as always, thank you so much for tuning in and joining us. I've been Julia Streets. Join us soon for another episode of Diversity Podcast.